and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Back. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, I'm a little sniffly. Okay. Not because I just watched a sad movie. Okay. Uh, but because of allergy reasons. Mm. It's been bad all weekend. We're recording on the weekend, so everything's all thrown off. Yeah, we're recording at noon, which means I am tired. <laughs> I went to bed uh, about five and a half hours ago. And so, but you know what? I'm going to keep my energy up because it's game time, David. It is game time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's pay some bills. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this episode, I, I would like somebody to go through and catalog everything that we say right before we launch into uh, our sponsors <laughs> and just to see how bad we are at transitioning into something that's very, uh, you know, very important. Important to us. Yeah. Important to us. And, and, and it should to be the listeners. Absolutely. Actually, because we, uh, we stand by these products. No question about We're not it. out here shilling for stuff we don't care about or don't use or are opposed to that's true right uh hang on is that has that always been true i think so actually that once or twice we've been approached uh a, to a, by a potential sponsor low level okay and uh they say like hey uh would you like to do this and i have said no um uh, some of it was for uh, price reasons, but not always. Okay. Um, yeah. See, I, I, you're the gatekeeper on that, so I don't know about yeah. that stuff. But I, I, mean, I support I'm, you. I stand and please note, you. I'm somebody that said yes to Zomboobies. and rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once I read the copy, I yeah. was like, uh, I'll, "I'll do this for free." Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not true, by the we way. Didn't. Okay. Uh, okay. So this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked select. A selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. All right, a lot of great movies are available right now, including Fritz Lang's Metropolis, uh, Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, uh, but perhaps most notable is the four-film series uh, featuring the work of Kelly Reichardt, uh, Wendy and Lucy, Old Joy, Meek's Cup, uh, cut off and a new restoration of her debut film river of grass they are all available right now along with uh, uh last i believe last week we talked about various films by the brothers quay um there's yep. a lot of stuff going on right now that's some good stuff have you seen memories of murder i have not you'd love it uh that's uh, i was reading up on it uh yeah. in preparation for this and i realized I'm not watching any Hitchcock movies, uh, so <laughs> I got to go. fill that void with something. Um, and then, yeah, the Kelly Reichardt stuff is um, uh, good uh, in lead up to her new movie, Certain Women, which I saw at Sundance. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, and you can read my review on the website, and it is fantastic. One of the best movies I've seen in 2016 so far. So uh, good year for her to, to get into Kelly Reichardt. Yeah, I, I think I've, of these, I've only seen Meek's Cutoff, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, I've heard I I would really like Wendy and Lucy. I think I would like Old Joy for a number of reasons. Um, But yeah, so, uh, and then once again, her debut film, River of Grass, has been newly restored, and that is available at Mubi as well. And there's a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great and they sound great. Uh, and Tyler and I use them. Uh, our guest might use them. I'm not sure. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, <laughs> they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension when you reach checkout, 
uh, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. The listeners might have noticed when they looked at their uh, MP3 players or their smartphones uh, or whatever it is they use, you know, maybe just the desktop. Or their regular phones if somebody texted and said, hey, guess what episode it is? Um, Just like an old flip phone. Right, yeah. Um, I guess that's a regular phone. When I, when I picture a regular phone, I picture, like, the phones we grew up with, like, landlines. David, get, with the, get with the program. A regular right. phone is a flip phone, uh, but we've all moved on to smartphones, I would assume. Okay. Um, smartphone, whatever you're listening to it on, streaming directly off the website. I know yeah. uh, a surprising number of people do that. Um, you might have noticed the number of this episode, right? That it ends in a zero, but is not evenly divisible by the number 50. Mm-hmm. And therefore... It must be a profile episode. That's right. But this is, I think this is a first in, our, so. in, our, in our long uh, and rocky history of profiling different uh, artists. There are some of the early profiles that I am not proud of. Well, they're not available um, anymore. That's true. Wait a minute. Why? Really? Yeah. Um, I guess when we were doing them every five episodes. Yeah. 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 Um, and then there are some early ones that I'm really proud of. Go back and listen to the F.W. Murnau or the Madeline Kahn episodes. Madeline so, Kahn is not available uh, anymore. Madeline Kahn is not available. Which okay. comes me out. Well, they could pay ten bucks, right? Yes, they can. If you, you donate ten dollars, you get a uh, or for to, to you know you can find the donate on the uh, link on the website. You can get our Tyler will send you our first forty episodes, which mm. are no longer available in the feed. Um, so if you are a completist, all it's just ten dollars away. Now, David, yeah, before you continue with your math lecture. I'm done with uh, the math. I was going to say who we're going to profile. Okay, and uh, and I feel bad uh, for interrupting that, but it occurred to me, we have not actually announced what is going on right now at BattleshipPretension.com. So, we, are, we have kicked off a new top 50 list. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, this year, last year I believe we did uh, top 50 scores. That was fun. This year we're doing something a little bit different, and, uh, and I'm, I'm nervous oh, I'm to see how it turns about, out. about it. Uh, I've been putting a lot of thought into my list. Oh, I good. I haven't sent one yet, but I've been thinking about it a lot. Okay. Uh, there have been in some... It's very early, so we'll see what happens. There are some very interesting, very alarming developments, uh, which I can't talk about. <laughs> so uh, so we are talking about the top 50 a- uh, movie actors and actresses. So here's what you're going to do. Uh, and and as, when I say top, you could pick movie stars. You could pick what you think are the best actors uh, whatever it is. Um, and so, and it can be from any time, you know, yeah. I've had people submit Buster Keaton. I've had people submit Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know? Um, and then let's see, I'm trying to think you got your Ingrid Bergman in there. You got your, uh, your Kate Blanchett. Okay. Uh, those are some, nom- uh, some, uh, some submissions. I don't want to, I don't want to sway you one way or another, Sure. but, uh, so Anytime in movie history, just email me, Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. And what I want you to do, I want you to list five actors, five actresses, and please rank them. 
Yes. Five to one. These one, are weighted. One being the best, yes. Uh, once I figured out how to incorporate the weighted system, it's actually very easy and so much more accurate than our past, uh, you know, in oh. fi- to such a degree that I think our, our, our lists in the past are in, in, invalid. Um, so we'll just have to do them all over again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so once again, uh, and we'll be doing this until, uh, August 31st. So you have a few weeks to do it. Uh, and please don't, uh, you know, don't uh, sit back and uh, just assume everybody else is going to submit your favorite actor. It might not happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, uh, again, there are some interesting developments. I think it's probably going to shift. I think it's probably going to shift away from these, which is good because I found myself, I naturally have a, I, I naturally like tense up when it comes to recency bias. Oh, oh you know what okay. I mean? Okay. Like how, uh, when we did our top, 100 directors uh edgar wright was like number 15 and ryan johnson was on there at all <laughs> at the time hadn't even done looper wow yeah he had done but he had i think he had just done that breaking bad episode the fly right and so um everybody yeah it's off-putting yeah yeah try try to avoid recency bias yeah. but at the you same t- but at the same time you have a bunch of kids whippersnappers exactly <laughs> look i know that your 16 years on this earth have really uh, given you some perspective <laughs> but uh no it's that's the thing it's and it this is where this is where i feel like a curmudgeon this is where i feel like you know mr wilson from dennis the menace is the recency bias for certain actors makes complete sense to me they are wonderful actors i cannot argue with them they might even be some of my favorite actors of all time but my natural assumption is like well yes but surely you would want to go with somebody who's been around for you know decades or uh you know passed away a long time ago and Mm -hmm. their and their uh their career is is set in stone um, and I, I can't give any examples. Yeah, because uh, you don't want to. Because I don't yeah, want to do it. I'm, I'm thinking of a ton of examples. Yeah, and so like, surely you would want to do that, but maybe not. Maybe you know, one thing that I always like about these lists is that it reflects who our listeners are, and if if somebody who's relatively recent, by which I mean the last ten to twenty years, um, if they are who they pick as their number one or number two or whatever then this is who then that reflects who our who our listeners are and and also what the internet is i david you you might recall i forget who who approached us um along with you know i think a hundred other online critics film school rejects film school school rejects and you know they they approached us to put together you know a top 10 movies of all time it was essentially the the it was the internet's response to the sight and sound that's right because they had just done their 2012 that's right yeah and so it was internet critics and, you know, Back to the Future, I believe, was in the top ten. It's a solid list of nine movies plus Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and my natural response. But that movie's 31 years old now, so it definitely, its legacy is cemented. But my natural oh, response yeah. is, come on, fellas. Yeah. You know, and uh, I would say ladies, but I feel like it's probably the fellas that are, <laughs> that are submitting Back to the but, Future. No, my... my um rejection or my you know my hesitance to embrace back to the future has nothing to do with its recency it has mm. to do with the fact that it's not that good maybe recency isn't the word i think it has to do with the 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 fact that so many people so many internet critics grew up with it and thus it will always Nostalgia. have a very Ugh. special place in their heart Gross. anyway but we need to, uh, we need to to move on i so apologize yeah, send your uh two separate top five lists yeah. best actor for 
but yeah, you, who you think of the best actors and the best actresses of all time, send them to Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. Uh, you can CC me if you want, but that doesn't do anything. Um, make sure you send it to Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. Yes. All right. Okay. So, Sorry to interrupt. Here we go. And thank you to our guest for sitting uh, quietly for so long and putting up with all of that. But it is time to get into a Battleship Retention first, which is the uh, a multi-part profile. That's right. All 20 weeks ago, we profiled... Uh, the early career of composer John Williams. Now we are here to do the midsection. Yes. Uh, the bloated midsection of John Williams. <laughs> I was going to say a blow right to his midsection. <laughs> yeah. And returning uh, our, our guest, a resident musicologist and guest expert, West Anthony. Hi. Thanks for uh, letting me come in and ruin your weekend. <laughs> oh, I have allergies. I got to do the show. Oh, I didn't get any sleep. I got to do the show. All right. I get it. Jeez. You want me to give you a dollar? And now, guess what? It's going to get worse because now uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk about something that you guys were just talking about because I have to weigh in on your recently bias. Like, oh, okay. You guys are finding out right now the hard way, something that I've learned and accepted uh, some time ago, which is this. When you die... 95% of all the stuff that you think is important and indispensable and I- invaluable is going away. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. So uh, you can go ahead and pound on the younger generation all you want and say, well, no, look, this stuff that you think is important. No, it's this mm-hmm. stuff over here, this older stuff. They don't care. They never will. That's why they remade Star Wars. <laughs> we already had Star Wars. And then, but the kids, they don't want it our star wars in a manner of speaking they want their own star wars so jj abrams gave them their own star wars well, that's I mean, what's going on now but see that's and not what i, I thought you're referring to jupiter ascending no. <laughs> Listen, that, think, think about it. i mean how many people are still listening to classical music today and i'm not trying to deride any of these forms of music but how many people are still listening to it now how many people are still listening to swing music or big band you know no. how many people are still listening to uh doris day or frank sinatra or Elvis, even the Beatles don't have as many people listening to them as they did 20 years ago today. Get it? The thing is, all that stuff, just it just goes. There's nothing you could do to stop it. See, and I don't care about that. That's not what I'm talking about. Because it doesn't bother me when, when, when Paul McCartney does a song with Kanye West and Rihanna and the youth of America are like, who is that guy? Who's that old guy? He's getting a real boost <laughs> in his career from working with Kanye West. Um, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't get the younger generation. I understand that. I'm talking about people of my generation who can't let go of nostalgia. That's what annoys me because I am one of them. And it's like, grow up back to the future and ghostbusters are just okay. See now here's, here's where, cause I, I feel like I'm somewhere in between where I feel like you're not nostalgic enough, you know? Uh, and then, but, but, you know, that's, too much but you know what? Actually, that's not true because if nostalgia simply gives a movie a pass because it's you grew up with it and you're not looking at it with a critical eye, then that yeah, that's too much nostalgia. Um, but you know, you just uh, you have such hate for everything from when you were a child. But you just hate it no, so here, much. Here's the thing: I still here's where I because I, I joke that I don't have any nostalgia. Right. Like I still have, I still feel fondly personally toward the movie Empire Records. But I also know that it's garbage. Right. It's yeah. a really, really bad movie. Yeah. But I saw it when I was 13, which is when you were supposed to see it, when it came out and you were 13. If you saw it when you were 14 yeah. or 15, you were already probably it's too over. old. Um, and uh, it captured a moment and it felt very important to me. I know that it's a trash movie yeah. that barely holds together at all. Uh, and I can say that. And I don't understand why there are some movies 
that people can't have that distance from. They can't say, yes, this was important to me uh, when I was a kid. And I'm not saying, like, obviously Back to the Future and Ghostbusters are not garbage the way that Empire Records is. They're very competently made in in, in funny movies, and and Back to the Future has some great uh, action-adventure type of uh, stuff in it. They're very solid movies. But when it makes the top ten of all time list, uh, that, to me, represents a lack of critical distance among people a certain age. Um, It's just like, yeah... It's like, I guess Buster Keaton's the general is okay, but where's the Chuck Berry reference? Um, it's a lar- largely to do, I think, with the, the sort of the infantilization of uh, recent generations and, of course, the sole sort of tendency toward anti-intellectualism that's been going on in this country for the last 30, 40 years, which has pretty much led to where we are right now in this election year. Mm. Just uh, people are encouraged to be dumb. Uh-huh. So you're going to get people making dumb decisions and outright rejecting anything that has the whiff of a smartiness to it. You've heard it here first, folks. West Anthony says back to the future is dumb and you are dumb for liking it. Yep. That's what I heard. You fit right in. So, but let's, <laughs> yeah, that's true. None of us are going to refute that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, now that we've, really put most of our listeners <laughs> on guard um and they are are sharpening their knives for us let's get into the topic let's jump back into john williams well and that's the thing is the nature of the movies we're talking about today you know the midsection here uh yeah. we're going to be dipping into for me and probably you guys as well a fair amount of nostalgia like the oh, my yeah. my lone oh, right, contribution yeah. to this list was a movie i was in denial about for a long time and you still should be no <laughs> no 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 i it's, i wait no in what sense no i my eyes are open oh. uh i do not think it's it's oh, very okay. good all right fine. i stand by the music in it but i don't think it's very good um but that's one that i held on to for a long time because of what it meant to me at that time in my life but it's something I had to let go. Whereas many of these I loved when I was a kid and, th- and now recognize that they are so much better than I thought they were as a kid. Like they're actual works of genius now. Um, but uh, anyway, but we can, we can move on. Yeah. John let's, once again, let's get back into it. And uh, now we should have, we went through this last time and we should have discussed this off mic. Okay. But what am I doing? Am I introducing the movie? Then we hear the clip. Then we discuss it. Is that how we do it? I think we switch it up every time. Uh, let's see. Do we want to do? Let's play no music and discuss nothing. <laughs> we'll just <laughs> sit here quietly for an hour. A battleship pretension. <laughs> Sniffling and napping. That's all we'll do. <laughs> and then everybody will feel better. Oh, that'd be great. Um, just have a live feed. That would uh-huh. be great. Um, yeah, let's. Uh, We'll play. Uh, we'll, we'll. We won't. How about we don't introduce the music? We don't say what it's from. We just say here's the next clip, and then we just jump right into it after that. No, or, I do hate you, not, that. you don't like that? If I were to listen, I would not like that. Oh, see I if I. Were, oh, if I were a listener, I'd be. I'd be like, I want to see if I can place it within ten seconds. That's uh, that's the kind of nerdy. Yeah, but then I wouldn't I be enjoying it. I'd be trying to place it. That's I'd rather true. say. So here we're going to start with the Empire Strikes Back. Okay, and we're going to hear a selection right now from. The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) 
Okay. Now, first thing everybody's going to notice as this show progresses is that this episode is going to be largely dominated by George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Oliver Stone. Um, can't be helped. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were the the titans of this this sort of uh, fifteen year period, uh, tr- turning out all kinds of amazing stuff. Well, actually, George Lucas only turned out one kind of amazing stuff, um, and I specifically chose this piece from The Empire Strikes Back because it's not something that everybody is maybe quite as familiar with because this, this is the piece called the asteroid field, and it's from that scene where they fly into the asteroid field to get away from the Empire, and I. I deliberately picked pieces from those last two Star Wars movies that we're going to be talking about here uh, that are not sort of main themes to highlight the versatility of John Williams and his ability to come up with motifs that are instantly uh, memorable and and add immeasurably to the movie, but you only hear them once and then they're gone Mm -hmm. because that's what really great composers will do. I mean, of course, they have to come up with themes for, you know, the characters and situations and stuff like that. But then, you know, if you see like a, a really good action sequence or a really good dramatic sequence and you see the opportunity to contribute something valuable to it, you can you can do it in a generic way, as unfortunately many composers do nowadays. Or you can really go that extra mile. You can step on the gas and contribute something memorable that's going to contribute to that scene. And that is exactly what John Williams did. And here in this movie, I mean, he introduced new themes that we didn't have from the first one. There was Yoda's theme and the theme for uh, Han Solo and Princess Leia for their burgeoning romance. And, of course, the Imperial March, which is otherwise known as Darth Vader's theme. And this is an interesting thing that uh, I was just thinking about because just last week I was listening to another uh, friend of your show. I'm noticed now I'm assuming there that I'm a friend of the show. Uh, sure. Uh, are, by definition. <laughs> but I was listening to another podcast that featured uh, Wayne Fetterman, mm-hmm. really great comedian, great guy. I met him. I got to talk to him uh, once a few years ago and he's a really great guy yeah. and he knows a lot about movies, but he was talking on this podcast and he brought up this observation and he was shocked to learn that the Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme did not originate in the first star Wars movie that it originated in empire. And in that's, not to say that Fetterman is some kind of a dummy because he's not, he's really smart. He's really funny. And he knows a hell of a lot about movies. So the fact that he didn't know this sort of to me is a testament to how ingrained all this music is within the, the pop culture fabric right. that we all experience. And that's, that's how good John Williams is. And this piece of music, I just, I love it because you know it starts with a, a brief reading of the, the Darth Vader theme. It ends with a, a more a fuller reading of the Han Solo and the Princess theme that was introduced <laughs> earlier in the movie, which is foreshadowing. It gives you an idea of what is going to develop later on in the film. But then in the middle, you have this other piece. It's just, uh, I mean, it's just action-oriented because they're in a desperate situation, and the, the music initially reflects this. It reflects the desperation of the situation, and it seems like everything is bad until... Han Solo makes the consciously idiotic decision to fly into an asteroid field instead of away from it. And that's when the music just turns on a dime and just suddenly becomes this joyous, rollicking romp. And it's like, wow. Because you could stay in the whole, you know, warning Roll Robinson danger type (laughs) mode. But John Williams instinctively reads the terrain and recognizes that this is this is not a moment where you should be going, oh, no, we're all going to die. It's this is a moment where we should be going, oh, Han Solo, <laughs> you yeah. rapscallion. That's, it's just, 
<laughs> that's the the big thing is I was listening to <clears throat> this track, and of course I've heard it a million times, but when you listen to something on its own and you're not hearing dialogue over it and all that sort of thing, you come to realize the, the it's weird to say nu- uh, nuances because this is a very big bombastic piece of music, but... But it's not the, without but, nuance. Right, like the, the way that it changes from one moment to another. Now... When we did the top 50 scores, uh, the, the number one was the score from Star Wars, uh, episode four, New Hope. Ugh. Um, just used to be that when I said Star Wars, everyone knew what I was talking about. I was talking about that f- the first one, not the first chapter. Damn it. Yeah. Um, so get over it. Uh, as I was listening to, I just mean, I don't like saying all these words, uh, but, uh, when I was, uh, when I was listening to it, of course it's wonderful music and uh, very beautiful in many ways. But as I was listening to this, this seemed more inherently adventurous than any of the music in the first star Wars. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of adventure there, but a lot of it, there's a very, it's very propulsive and it's very, um, uh, I don't know. There's, there's definitely an, uh, I mean, obviously I'd say there's an operatic quality to it. Uh, whereas this seemed more just straight up, as you said, fun and joyous and not, I'm not saying that as a way of like bashing the score to the first star Wars. It's amazing, obviously, but I, it it feels as though John Williams felt like he had the freedom to kind of not, not even necessarily experiment, but to, but to kind of stretch his legs and, and just see what he could, what he would be allowed to do. And, you know, when you think of all the, the different themes that he introduced in Empire Strikes Back, but then also pieces of music like this, that, as you said, just really embraces the fun of Star Wars, even in the midst of tremendous danger. Well, yeah. And it also the thing is, is that it, it is kind of expanding the palette as much of the movie is because you already have Star Wars to build on, which was the most popular movie in the universe at that time. So it it would be easy to just sort of sit still and give everybody the same thing over again. But to Lucas's and everybody who worked on the film, to their credit, they chose to, to expand what they were doing. And yeah, the music is part of that. And it really, John Williams in his own way is sort of contributing to the character of Han Solo Mm -hmm. because there's, you get an idea of what Han Solo is in the first movie, but everybody in the movie is drawn in broad strokes but here, John Williams is, in a way, he's kind of burnishing the Han Solo legend mm-hmm. by giving it, adding this, this sort of swashbuckling music that it's like, you know, it reminds you of, of guys like Errol Flynn or Douglas Fairbanks Jr. You know, all these, these guys from all these great old movies where they were just, you know, doing adventure stuff, you know, like you know, Robin Hood or, you know, the, the Mark of Zorro and stuff like that. That's what John Williams is adding to Han Solo's character. And so it really, it helps you to gain a better understanding of who he is. Cause again, you know, flying into an asteroid field, that's pretty much counterintuitive to all of us, mm-hmm. but to him, it's like, it's exactly the right thing to do. And the music is commenting on that. Say, well, yes, that's what this guy's going to do. And it's all going to work out. So just sit back and have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's, it doesn't seem like it, but it's more of a character moment. You know, that, <laughs> You know that an asteroid is not going to destroy the Millennium Falcon and everyone inside, thus taking a very drastic turn in the Star Wars series. So when you know that, uh, then it's just a fun thing. And where does the fu- how, where does the fun thing originate? It originates with Han Solo, and so you're 
I'd say fi- finding out more about him, except you already know these things, but now it's just further illustration of, of, of who he is. Well, I think, yeah. Um, but we also, should move on. That's going to be my, my job here. Is okay. to, All right. Because uh, we have <laughs> 11 tracks here. Um, so uh, my of job whack. would be to keep us moving. What's that? 11 tracks of whack. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's. One or on. two of these isn't that. Aren't Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, that's, that's an in joke. <laughs> what uh, was the name of Walt, Walter Becker? The, the the two guys from yeah from from Steely Dan the one of them was Donald Fagan and Walter Becker did a solo album called Eleven Tracks of Whack. Okay, now there you can we move go. On. <laughs> now let's hear, now we're let's, back hear on. All, let's hear all of them. Uh, no, now we are going to hear another uh, George Lucas related uh, track, uh, and this is from Raiders of the Lost Ark.
Okay, so same thing here. Um, the, the Raiders march is iconic. Everybody knows it. And then, of course, you have uh, Marion's theme, which is very uh, uh, lush and sweeping and romantic. Um, but here again, Williams has the opportunity to create other themes and motifs that are just as... And here, this one is called uh, the Map Room Dawn, and this accompanies a scene where Indiana Jones finds the uh, the map room to determine the exact location of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's an incredibly uh, uh, memorable and, and sort of reverential theme. And also... It's it's important the way that it's done in this particular scene in the movie, because up to this point, yeah, we're not entirely sure whether or not this arc is going to be, you know, a big to do. I mean, yes, we know Hitler's going after it, but, you know, how smart was that guy, really? <laughs> so uh, but when you get to this scene, then the music basically sort of speaks up and lets you know that, yes, this is something that is going to have to be taken seriously. There is a reason why everybody is after this. And, and you need that at particularly at this point where you're mixing in amongst Nazis or, you know, really bad dudes. You need to understand what the stakes are. And the music is saying that the stakes could not be any higher without the music. It's just a guy standing in a room, holding a stick, waiting for the sun to come up. But with the music, now you you have a better idea that yes this is this is a real thing there could be real consequences if one person or another gets their hands on it so you know the now you know the stakes and now you have you are more you're going to be more invested in what happens in the rest of the movie so okay this is one of those movies that i grew up with and uh, of course it's amazing um and so it's hard for me to hear any of this music and not have an immediate association with my feelings as a kid, but then also just knowing what the, what the film is. And so when I say what I'm about to say, I can't act as though this is purely objective uh, in, any, in any way. Um, this bit of music, even now, all these years later, this bit of music is to me like disquieting. Uh, I find it like... Dis, not disturbing, but it just like, it just like my, my shoulders tense up and I just feel like, uh, this is like, there's a, there's an ominous quality to it, especially yep. maybe because it's so quiet and just, there's definitely, you know, he's, he's investigating something and I don't know, there, there's something supernatural about it. There's something otherworldly about it. Mm-hmm. And it, and to have that music come into play while he's investigating something, and this is where my knowledge of the plot might come into my interpretation of the music, this music feels like you're playing with something and you don't know what it is. Like you are messing with forces and you, you can't control them, and if only you knew, you would leave all of this alone. Like it, it's just, there's a, I feel like there's foreboding, I feel like it's threatening. Uh, I don't know, this, this music really does... Be- probably because like even when I was a kid and I would watch this scene, you know, we hadn't seen anything horrendously frightening. We certainly hadn't seen like the face melting or the snakes or anything like this. Um, but this scene and combined with this music, when I saw it as a kid, I was like, something bad is going to happen. Yeah. That's what it's there for. That's yeah. Again, it's to, to let you know that the stakes have been raised. And- I mean, but that, well, what's interesting is that scene ends with a note of triumph. You know, and and the music does as well. Like he gets what he needs, but and maybe that's that's yeah, because yeah. he's the good guy, and he's that's the guy true. we yeah. want to yeah, have yeah. the ark. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we yes. don't want it falling into the hands of the other guys. It's like, well, look, ideally it should be left alone. But if anybody need is going to have it, it would be uh, this guy. Uh, yeah, I I love this piece of music. I think it's amazing and so effective. 
And I think it is a bummer that, uh, maybe not, maybe not a bummer, but when people think of the music from Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously they'll think of, you know, the, the March, but, um, wait, what's it called? Not, the Imperial March? Not the Imperial March, but like the, the official... The Raiders March. The Raiders March. Okay, mm-hmm. so I was oh, right sorry. when I said March. Uh, the Imperial Raiders March. Got it. Uh, <laughs> you know, they think about that, and obviously it's understandable why, but uh, but bits of music like this, I'm, I'm glad that you picked this and not, you know, the Raiders March, because this is what the movie is made of, is, you know, yeah, moments again, like this. You know, every, everybody's heard that other piece. So yeah. I want to just call attention to, to other stuff, because there yeah. is other stuff. Um I'm also going to add, I, I can't even remember if we discussed uh, all of this in the last episode because it basically it was a similar thing that happened in that era for John Williams. That he was nominated for Best Original Score and he lost to Vangelis for uh, Chariots of Fire. I think we did talk about, oh, no, we didn't talk about it in the last episode. We talked about it in the Top 50 Scores episode because oh, okay. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a top 10. Yeah, because that was the, basically what happened to him in, with, with this is the same thing that happened to him with Superman. He got nominated for Best Original Score for that one, and he lost to Giorgio Moroder for Midnight Express. And in both instances, Giorgio Moroder and Vangelis, they basically won an Oscar for three minutes of music. Because the, the, the three minutes of music that Giorgio Moroder did, I mean, he did a whole score for Midnight Express, but there's one bit, it was called The Chase, it was released as a single, and it was very, very popular. And then Vangelis did release the theme from Chariots of Fire, and it went right. to number one on the charts, and it was a big hit. And that's what won them the Oscars. Every other piece of music that, was, that they composed for those films, I defy anybody to you know, hum me one tiny <laughs> bit of it. You can't, because you don't know it. Okay, So it's just something that really shouldn't have happened. Both of those guys, they should have just put that piece of music up for like a best original song. If you had, if you right. had given Vangelis the Oscar for best original song for theme from Chariots of Fire, that would have been fine. Mm-hmm. But that's just not the way it worked out. Well, speaking of music that people do know and can hum, we're going to move on to another uh, uh, another Spielbergian delight. Uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial.
Now, this one here, uh, basically, I had to edit down a 15-minute piece of music because uh, we don't have that kind of time for everybody. Uh, and, and you don't have that kind of time either. The thing is, man, I... I I'll never forget the, the first, well, I mean, a lot of these movies, I won't forget the first time. The first time I saw Raiders was at the opening weekend in the Chinese theater and down in the front row. It was just mind bending. And the first time I saw E.T. Well, can I, uh, according to my parents, at least, E.T. is the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. Oh, I have no, kidding. I have no recollection of this. Oh, yeah. See, the original Jungle Book is supposedly the first movie I saw in a theater, but uh, I don't but, remember that yeah. either. Because this is back when movies that were successful would stay in the theater for months yeah, at a time. A long, I, long time. Yeah, E.T. Yeah. I, E.T. came out a couple months before I was born, okay. but was still and in just theater. just left theaters right. three weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but actually, I, I saw it before it was in theaters. Because the thing is, I went to see Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is uh-huh. a great uh, movie <laughs> with Steve movie, Martin. Yeah. And they threw in E.T. as a sneak preview. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. I had no idea that. Well, I mean, I knew that it was you know, that I was going to see the sneak preview of the Steven Spielberg movie, but I had no idea what it was because there was no press on it because it was a sneak preview. I had no idea what to expect, and everybody was just blown away. It was just it's, it's such a uh, it, it's, it's still just a, a magical, incredible experience. I like the idea of it's like, hey, we're going to go see a Dead Men Don't Wear a Plaid, and yeah, I guess there's this other movie called E. T. Who, who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> but and then um, I bought the soundtrack album. And it was it was really kind of surprising that like that side two only has two tracks and the last one which is called Adventure on Earth is fifteen minutes long, and it's the last fifteen minutes of the movie, mm-hmm. and which makes perfect sense for them to just hold that together as one track because really it's like a symphonic suite, the climax of this movie, and Spielberg just gives John Williams that entire chunk of, of the end of the movie, like the last 15, 20 minutes or so, and just lets him do whatever he's going to do. There's nothing in there that there's really no, no moments in there where there are no, no long stretches where there's no music. It's all there. And he builds up to this really operatic climax, which is what you just heard. I just gave you the last two minutes of that final 15 minutes of the score. Uh, and it's, it's glorious. You know, it's basically what everything has been leading up to. And it's just such an incredible emotional climactic experience that uh, it's really it's inextricable uh, with the film. You can't separate the one from the other. I mean, you know, we're kind of trying to here. But if you aren't imagining, you know, E.T. and Elliot saying goodbye and that little, uh, you know, Christmas ornament spaceship taking off. You know, I don't know what you're doing with your life. And I'm sure you've seen... uh this is one of my favorite things when people do it is uh, somebody recut. Well, they didn't recut the scene, but they showed that scene without music. They, and they, I think they did like some Foley work and put sound effects back in. So it's just Elliot and, and ET standing there and they hug it out and, and yeah, not really the, saying anything. The way they go. <laughs> and you know, obviously it's no, uh, it's no new idea that uh, music uh, will change the the tone of the scene, <laughs> right. uh, but uh, but when you watch that and you realize, like, yeah, I guess you don't even recognize that these two characters aren't really saying anything to each other because the music is doing all the talking, right? And uh, when you take that out, you realize, like, oh yeah, without the music, they would need to say a lot more, but the music is saying what they're feeling. And that is a much more important thing than any dialogue could be in that particular moment. Yeah. 
it really is just a, a spectacular moment. And I, I recognize that there are people who sort of have some kind of resentment toward E.T. because it was so popular that it sort of uh, everybody seems to think that it spoiled the national mood towards uh, appreciating darker movies that came out that same summer, like John Carpenter's The Thing and, and Ridley Scott's uh, Blade Runner. But, you know. Uh, get over it. <laughs> Every, everybody now acknowledges that both of those movies are masterpieces and quite possibly the best thing either of those directors have ever done. We now know. So it's okay. I mean, yeah, I wish, I wish John Carpenter had had a more successful career too. Uh, Ridley Scott. Well, I mean, he, he pretty much got the career he deserved. He's up and down. There's nothing you can do about that guy, but <laughs> I, I wish that, that, you know, John Carpenter was, you know, living in, in Xanadu and, you know, had all the, the <laughs> private jets he could eat. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out for him quite so well. And, and the thing is just, yeah, it's his best film as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'm sorry that that happened. But, uh, yeah, E.T. really just took over the world. It was just like a, a tidal wave of, of, of love and, and other maudlin emotions. Everybody just, just went for it in, in a huge way. I know. I was there. Well, and those movies are still around. It's not as though these families are like, I feel so good and I never want to feel bad. Quick, burn the negatives <laughs> to the thing in Blade Runner, please. Well, uh, uh, I don't have any good um, transition for this one. Uh, I'm glad no one burned the negatives, I guess, for this movie, um, even though it's not great. Uh, it's called Return of the Jedi.
So here again, uh, we have another Star Wars movie where more themes have been introduced. There's a theme for the Ewoks, and there's a theme for Luke and Leia, as opposed to Han and Leia. And, uh, and yet, we have this other self-contained piece of music that comes at a very critical point in the story where the Rebels are going to be uh, attacking the Death Star yet again, because uh, I guess this is a cycle that we always have to be attacking Death Stars. There's, there's no getting away from it now. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. all but, of this has happened before and all of it will happen again. But it's just, it's, it's such a great moment. And the music serves the moment very well because there's this really just stoic quality to the music because the, the rebels know what they're up against, except that they don't know what they're up against. And that's another thing at, the, at a certain critical point in the music, they find out what they're really up against. And the thing is, is that, then it retains that stoic quality, but it adds a level of desperation because now they still know that they have the mission. They still know that they're in big trouble. Now they know they're grossly outnumbered. Many of them are probably going to die, but they can't turn around. It's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. And for me, this is one of the musical emotional highlights of the movie, because I don't know if you have that experience of like, Everything is terrible. Nothing is going to get better. I may not survive this, but I have to keep going. I have. It's called my childhood. But uh, other people, I don't know. Maybe you have something similar to that. But the thing is, it's just that stoic quality combined with the, that level of desperation and just knowing that you have to push through that and keep going regardless of whatever is going to happen. Uh, again, like I say, it's an emotional highlight for, within the score. And uh, it's also kind of interesting to note that this was the first of those three Star Wars movies where um, the first two, when they came out on, on vinyl, because that's what we had back then, they were double albums. Uh, Return of the Jedi was the first one that was only a single album. Even though there was enough music for a double album, they only put out one record. I'm still not entirely sure why. I mean, eventually all of the music was released right. uh, like 20 years later or something like that. But, you know, that's, that's just something that happened. I, I've still never gotten to the bottom of that. Hmm. Yeah, it's and you know it's interesting that you that you mentioned that and that you, as I said, with, with stuff like uh, the asteroid field and that sort of thing, um, <clears throat> we know that uh, these characters are going to be fine, you know. Uh, but it's worth noting that the rebels going to fight the Death Star in the uh, a scene that he's become. Unfortunately, uh, infamous for Admiral Akbar saying it's a trap, which it is, which it is. <laughs> but uh, they have him saying it, and now a lot of people, including front of the show, Asterius Coconos, has yeah. turned that into a joke. But the but when you realize that, well, let's see who's involved, who who's part of the the people that are going in, you know, going to destroy the Death Star. It's not Luke, it's not Han and Leia. It's Lando, and I believe uh, is Chewie with him, or no? no uh, yeah. Chewie is with Han. So it's just like, oh, okay, Lando could die. Yeah, they they might kill him, and, and they remember, might. There was like a little possible foreshadowing moment where before Han and, and his party took off, he was looking at at the Millennium Falcon, and Leia asked him what was wrong. He said, "I don't know. I got a funny feeling, like it's not like I'm not going to see her again." Yeah. And so they, they're, they're planting that in the, the the audience's mind, which you know turns out not to happen. Spoiler, but. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, there, so there is that real feeling that you know a, a lot of people are not going to come out on the other side of this thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really it's a really nice moment, and I was glad that 
you'd picked this because just in listening back to it, there is a, it's a combination of, of tragic and obviously propulsive. Cause as you said, you need to just keep moving forward. Um, and so there's, which I guess when you put those things together, I don't know. There's also definitely a, a there's a heroism there because if you keep moving forward, even though you are probably going to die and you do it so that you can stop evil, then that makes you uh, an instant hero. And so it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a great piece of music. And David, in regards to uh, you're saying it's not that very, that good of a movie, uh, that is definitely a, a thing that I agree with to a point. Uh, I say I, I still maintain that that first 30 minutes is some of the best Star Wars filmmaking I've ever seen. Um, okay. Uh, now you, could, you just gave a, a look that implies uh, you disagree. Jabba's Palace. I don't feel any way about it. You know, oh man, it's been easily twenty years since I've seen this movie. You should easily. watch it. Okay. Like genuinely, like all right. It is that third act does have some problems. Um, specifically once they get to Endor, um, with the Ewoks and everything there, like. Han and Leia don't really have much to do. No, and they kind of really they they sort of pull the rug out from under everything they built up with the Han Solo character by turning turning him into kind of a buffoon. Yeah, and that's uh, that's no good at all. But uh, but the stuff with Luke Vader and the Emperor is pretty good uh, in the third act. But yeah, the the Endor stuff people point to that and say that everything that the movie is that that makes the movie irredeemable. But there's a lot of good stuff going on in the film. It is. Of those three, it's obviously the the worst of the three, but that doesn't mean that the movie is bad. Okay. I didn't say it was bad. I said it's not that great. <laughs> Did you say not that great? I thought you said not that good. Maybe okay. I said not that good. Like, right. like I said, it's been over 20 years. I will, I will back down from that opinion immediately. I am not willing to fight on this at all <laughs> because I don't... <laughs> Uh, but let's move on to the movie that I'm not going to fight on um, because I've never, I've never seen it. Uh, this is from The Accidental Tourist.
Okay, now... I love I, this movie. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I I like this movie. I, I used to love it a lot more until uh, the last time I saw it, which was just recently in preparation for this episode. Uh, I'm going to add really quickly, parenthetically, that in between the piece of music that we played before that and this one, uh, there is another thing that John Williams did, which is also uh, very uh, important and memorable to me, which was the first uh, of several themes that he wrote for the Olympics. He wrote right. one for the, the Summer Olympics uh, that were here in Los Angeles in 1984. Uh, which we can't play here because it's not from a movie. And these guys are really picky. <laughs> but, uh, but if you head over to Musical Notation. Yep, I played it. Yeah. Because I, I played uh, some stuff from, from that album because, because that track is on there and it isn't there anywhere else. And then there's another piece in there by Philip Glass that is not available anywhere. And so I, I played them. So, and we just played it on the show last week. So you can go and check that out. Is it the, the Olympic fanfare and theme that John Williams wrote? I mean, they use, still use it all the time. And it's uh, it's it's really memorable and suitably uh, uh, anthemic and heroic and and neato. Um, but so now you have the accidental tourist, which is really John Williams going into a, a very different mode from pretty much everything that we've heard up to this point. Uh, and it's it's a much more uh, mournful and melancholy and contemplative type of music, which is in it. it it's entirely fitting for the main character of the movie. He was played by William Hurt as a guy who lost his son and uh, then uh, his marriage breaks up. And then he meets Gina Davis, who is a, a prototypical manic pixie dream girl. Yep. I mean, it was just, that was the thing that, I mean, I, I saw this movie when it came out and I really liked it. It's directed by Lawrence Kasdan, incidentally, who does have a relationship to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, but mm-hmm. at least this is not one of their movies. This is his movie. And, um, it's just, yeah, I really, I love the movie when I saw it the first time when it came out, but now co- close to 30 years later, given, you know, hindsight and a lot of, you know, cultural shifts, uh, here in America yet yeah, now it's a lot easier to, to look at that character that Gina Davis plays for which she won an Academy Award, by the she way, did. character of Muriel Pritchett and, and see that, that whole manic pixie dream girl template just stamped all over her. And you know, I haven't actually seen the film since that character type has really become uh, prevalent. And so, and I do own it. It's a movie that I feel like I would like to uh, revisit. Um, it's still got a lot of good things in it, yeah. but it's just, it was just the way that, I mean, from the moment that those two characters met, I mean, there was just no explanation of any kind at all given to the way she just glommed onto him. The moment he walked into this, this pet shop thing, yeah. it was like, why, why is this? Ha- why is, and, and she just sort of, uh, guilelessly sets herself to uh, the task of of rehabilitating William Hurt and getting him to open up as a human being and 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 it's like why explain it to me explain why she's doing this and it's just it's so incredibly self serving and and the thing is this is based on a novel that was written by a woman Ann Tyler hmm. so you know sorry you can't lay this entirely at the feet of the patriarchy oh. uh, everybody <laughs> a woman named Ann Tyler it wasn't written by a woman oh named yeah uh, Tyler. David I, I wrote a book a while ago <laughs> with this woman um, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember her name uh, but uh, Ann Elk <laughs> wait what Ann Elk 
I don't know what that means. That's from Monty Python sketch. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the sketches I don't know, unfortunately. Um, but no, it just I I'm watching the movie this time because I was watched a couple of weeks ago for this episode, and I just it the question why just kept rolling back into my head. Why did she glom on it? There's because there's no explanation given. There's no valid reason for it because he's a mopey sad sack. And yes, uh, we know that he's got perfectly valid reasons for being a mopey sad sack. You know, he lost his son to a tragedy. His wife uh, just broke up with him and he's, he's got every reason to be a uh, mopey and sad succulent. And yet this woman just like, Oh, he, he, here's the guy for me. And she just sets herself about the task of, of bagging this guy. And it makes no sense at all. And it's it's still it's a great it's a great performance. The movie is loaded with great performances. Yeah, I mean, Gina Davis is great. William Hurt uh, is great. Kathleen Turner, uh, Bill Pullman in in, in an early uh, performance. He's he's very sweet in this movie, and uh, it's just it's it's a fine film with gr- great performances and excellent writing. But just that one central relationship, there is nothing given to that relationship to make you believe that it is something that would happen in the real world. And it's, I think once the, for me, once the relationship, and again, I haven't seen it in a while, but, uh, once the relationship gets started, I'm pretty okay with it. But I guess what you're talking about is there's no real catalyst for it to start. And so without that, the catalyst is him walking into the room. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so and he fights it. Yeah, that's true. You know, he basically kind of pushes her away for like the first third of the movie. Maybe she's kind of predatory. That's that's the way I see it. That's not true. That's not how I see it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and and the music. You're absolutely right. The the movie is one of my favorite words. It's very melancholy. Yeah, and and the music reflects that. Um, and there's a certain, I'd say there's a certain uh, pleasantness to the to the music. Yeah. Um, but but not but in an, uh, in a way that is um i don't know it's what do you call that it's i can't i can't think of i can't think of the word but it's just it's it's as though it's it's a forced pleasantness uh that is hiding uh the melancholy there's there's a hollowness to it yeah. that is just sort of masking just you know like a roiling cauldron of sorrow yeah. which is really yeah. you know what's going on and that's the thing that's why i i chose this piece because yeah once again john williams captures the the mood and the tone of the character in the story brilliantly and also at the same time it is a mood and a tone that we are not necessarily accustomed to hearing from him mm-hmm. not at least certainly not at this point now, uh, one of the three names you mentioned at the top uh, was Oliver Stone. So I think we should move uh, directly into the Oliver Stone era here sure. with uh, Born on the Fourth of July.
Yeah, and this is the first of a sort of three films that uh, John Williams scored for Oliver Stone. Uh, it's I don't know if Stone himself refers to it as a trilogy, but people who are fans of John Williams would refer to it as a trilogy because the three films that he did with Oliver Stone. Uh, the only trilogy that I know of that Oliver Stone has in his in, on his mantle is this the, the presidential one, uh, which would include JFK, Nixon, and W, which is not anywhere in this movie. John Williams didn't do the score for that movie. And I know some people kind of wish that he had, but actually I'm okay with that because A, Will, uh, W is not nearly as good a movie as any of these Oliver Stone movies that we're going to talk about here. And B, I think John Williams would have given uh, too much. Uh, it it would have it made the, 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 the character probably a lot better than he should. Really, <laughs> just wall-to-wall Leonard Skinner and yakety sax. That's all W needs. Um, I liked W. No, I liked it too. But, but you mean just, as far as I'm, I'm saying Tyler means that, president. Yeah. yeah oh, <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> you know what though? Like given, uh, moder- given uh, modern politics, I was listening to an interview with uh, an old interview with uh, George W. Bush and I thought like, wow, he's so much more preferable oh, yeah, to yeah. Uh, the, was, our current someone, nominee. Someone was comparing like what George W. Bush said about Sh- Cindy Sheehan yeah. to what that Donald Trump has said about the oh, cons yeah. and stuff that I found and still find objectionable about George W. Bush. It sure. seems so reasonable yeah. and even handed now. Oh yeah. He's uh, his class level compared to Donald Trump yeah. is like Cary Grant. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but okay. So, so born on the 4th of July, which is uh, it's, it's a magnificent film. Uh, I love it. And I was going to actually, I wanted to ask you about this. Tyler. Have you okay. done an episode on that movie for uh, more than one lesson? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, well, we don't, we try to avoid any, anything even remotely French. So I don't like that. Uh, we have not, I haven't seen it in a while. I remember okay. loving it. I do think it's a great movie. I think maybe it's something that you might want to get into mm-hmm. because it, particularly in the first act and, and again, later on in the film, one of the things that I noticed is that there's sort of, the 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 layer of uh, the, of religion and the notion of consequences, because like in the first act with the thing where where Ron Kovic's mom finds a, a Playboy magazine in his room mm-hmm. and you know it says you know God will punish you for this and the very next scene is Ron Kovic losing uh, a wrestling match yeah and there's no doubt in my mind anyway that that Oliver Stone is drawing a parallel between these two actions I haven't read. Ron Kovic's book, so I don't know if that's something that he himself alluded to while he was writing the book. But then also later on in the film, because when he finally does get to Vietnam and there's this really unfortunate, terrible uh, slaughter of, of innocent civilians, yeah. and then capped off with him accidentally just you know killing one of his own fellow soldiers because the sun yeah. was in his eyes, and then the next thing that happens, he gets shot and he is paralyzed from the waist down, and so. And, and then he's carrying this guilt around with him uh, through most of the movie. And it isn't until you get to the third act where he finally actually has a sit down with the family of that fellow soldier that he killed, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily lead to any easy conclusion or absolution for Ron Kovic. But then it seems like there is some degree of a weight lifted off him, which then leads to him becoming an advocate for, you know, the anti-war cause. And, you know, then next thing you know, he's at one of the the Republican conventions and saying, hey, let's get out of this war, everybody. Um, And so, yeah, I, I really think that there's there is a, a level in there that should be explored that film about the, you know, religion and sort of, you know, the, the, the consequences of, you know, you know, disobeying commandments or the Lord's mm-hmm. wishes or whatever. And then of course, you know, the concept of, cause I don't, I don't know if it was ever special. I don't think they were Catholics. 
I certainly know about Catholic guilt. But I was, was going to say, well, they're, they're <laughs> but focusing the thing is, on you know uh, the whole thing about you know Catholic guilt or Jewish guilt. You know, get off. The, it, it's just guilt. Yeah, there is no mother in the world who hasn't tried to guilt trip their kids. You know, for, regardless of their religious preference. Sure. But <laughs> like but, the other day, I was talking on Facebook with my mom, and she said. Now, you shouldn't slaughter any innocents. Otherwise, you might lose use of your legs. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, Mom. Yeah, jeez, what again <laughs> with this? When does it stop? No, but, but anyway. So. No, that's, and that's honestly, that's a thing when it comes to depictions of, of religion. Um, in film and on TV, uh, there tends to be a, and I'm not going to say, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say this in, a, in an overly negative way in this case, because I think that Oliver Stone is kind of brilliant in a lot of ways, and so I'm trusting him uh, in this case. And I can think of an idea as to why he would do that, uh, but which I'll get to in a moment. But, um, but yeah, there's definitely a, a simplification of, of religion. It is often why I think a lot of, uh, you'll see a lot more Catholics in film than Protestants, because... Catholicism has a lot of stuff that goes with it, a lot of stuff that's cinematic. It yeah. has, you know, crucifixes. It has priests that look a very specific way. It has, you know, uh, it has uh, churches with these amazing stained glass windows and looks very gothic, like as opposed to like a Presbyterian church, which is like, oh, it's just some building in the suburbs. Um, you know, it's not as interesting. But, uh, and in that same way, it's a lot easier to talk about, like, to, to reduce it to, you did this thing and so something will happen. You know, uh, not a whole lot of concepts of grace or anything like that. Uh, but it could also be, you know, what the characters, uh, hmm. I guess looking at a playboy, a playboy doesn't necessarily mean this, but, uh, you know, Oliver Stone is not, uh, above using metaphor to explore that, uh, yeah, the, uh, the U.S. is not blameless, and uh, right. our chickens are going to come home to roost at some point. Yeah, um, you know, and so seeing Ron Kovic as a as an example of that could be uh, something he's doing. But um, I I remember and in listening again, listening back to okay, your sample to music. Yeah, sorry. And listening back <laughs> We've to the longer on this movie than we have on some other movies, and we haven't talked about the music yet. We'll get, the next one, don't worry. We'll we'll get there. Uh, but. Um, yeah, I this this is one of those bits of music that I think I forgot is it like originated with Born on the Fourth of July. It has been used in a lot of trailers. Yep, and it's a one. I understand why it's a wonderful piece of music. Um, and it's there's a you know a certain degree of well, I'll go back to melancholy. A certain degree of melancholy patriotism to it. Yeah, well, I think. All of the music that Williams composed for those three Oliver Stone movies, they, I think they're, in a way, they're sort of like an elegy for certain crucial parts of America that Oliver Stone clearly feels got lost somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the thing that I find really interesting that, that sort of unifies not just those three movies, but the scores for those three movies. And that's what the, that score, yeah, for Born on the Fourth of July in particular, yeah, it's it's it is very very mournful because this, is, of course, because you have a guy who basically lost his legs in Vietnam. You know, that's that's the core of the story, and that's no fun for anybody. Uh, and it's a, a really a harrowing ordeal that he went through there in Vietnam, and then more so, more of the same. Well, actually, no, not of the same, but more harrowing ordeals when he came home. So yeah. it's just it was just not easy for him, you know any way you slice it. So the, the score reflects this and it, so the, the, the just almost Shakespearean level of tragedy 
yeah that you hear in this score and again throughout this this whole trilogy because that's the thing that you're going to hear as we go forward into the the other two scores that's the thing that you hear and i think that that's it speaks to something that oliver stone is trying to say uh, about america and williams was very effectively able to to tap into that and express it in musical terms okay now to the one Tyler's been waiting to talk about. Because <laughs> Wes submitted his 10 selections. We had a nice even 10. And Tyler said, no, sir, we're not getting through this without talking about this movie, uh, which is Hook. Okay, so uh, Hook is the movie that I was talking about earlier that uh, I saw it at a very specific time in my life. I was nine years old. Uh, I loved, for whatever reason, I loved everything Peter Pan at the time. I just thought it was, I loved the Disney film, um, and uh, I'd read the book, and I just, I really liked it. And the idea of, oh, like a live-action Peter Pan is very exciting to me. And so I saw this film, and I thought it was, you know, amazing. And and for a long time, I held out that I, that it was that it was great or at the very least, you know, very good. Um, there are still some things that I will defend. Uh, I, I think Dustin Hoffman is having a great deal of fun and, uh, maybe too much fun, but I, but given, honestly, I've seen Peter Pan played on stage a number of times and the actor playing Captain Hook always has fun. Uh, there does seem to be like, I've seen performances where Captain Hook will address the audience um, we, but just like a little, like the audience is taught to say like, you know, boo hiss whenever he comes on and he'll be like, Oh, shut up, you know? And it's like, okay, that's an odd choice, but I don't know. There's, there's a, an element to, to captain hook that I always thought was, it wasn't just the actor. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no one told him, ahead, no yeah. one told him ahead of time. <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I like, what Dustin Hoffman is doing. I'm a big fan of Bob Hoskins. It's me. I feel like that works really well. Um, the film itself is just kind of a mess, uh, in retrospect. But one thing that I do like is the music. Uh, and some of this might be as a function of when I saw it, but I, you know, a lot of it's very overblown, but I'm okay with that. Uh, and the, the bit of music that I picked 
is essentially the it's it's not yeah i guess it is captain hook's theme but uh this one is a bit bigger and more bombastic because it is the introduction not merely of captain hook but of the village of pirates first and so there's kind of a a a bigness to it uh that i that i respond to quite a bit i i like whenever whether he's doing you know uh you know a jazz type thing in you know catch me if you can um or something like this where i think john williams is having a great deal of fun with it and i think he's definitely trying to evoke something uh you know much was made of his uh some of his music in jaws which he said he was trying to evoke a pirate quality well now he can full-on do it and you and i feel like he's enjoying himself quite a bit so i feel like you're making as many points as you can to shore up some defense defense it's not a good movie against whatever west is about to yeah say. i'm not gonna say it's a good uh, i'm not gonna say it's a good movie <laughs> so let's uh hear what west i'm worried that say. i'm worried that he doesn't like the music do you hate the music why do you hate it so much Tyler, you ignorant slut. <laughs> slut shaming. No, no. I'm triggered. No, look. Um, it, the music is okay. The, the problem is, is, frankly, Williams was not given a whole hell of a lot to work with. This mm-hmm. movie is a misfire on almost every count. I mean, like... And you saw it for the first time only recently. Yes, for this, this goddamn show. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to watch it in the past, and I couldn't get through it. Is it better or worse than Empire Records? Um... Empire Records at least has like a recognizable setting for me. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, at least, at least I, it's, it's in a record store and I love record stores cause I love music. And so I'll, I'll give it like a vote over hook just based on that. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's just all right, for starters. Um, why not just tell a Peter Pan story That's, instead of, instead of yeah. just, uh, you know, pasting your daddy issues over the, the story and having this whole thing where, uh, you know, apparently he's like Tyler Durden and mm-hmm. suddenly he just has this whole other life that he doesn't even remember because he has, it's just, it's just walled it off in his mind. Defend- <laughs> Peter Pan is usually about daddy issues to some extent. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't like Mr. Darling is, is always the Captain same Hook. actor as Captain Hook. Yeah. Oh, is it? In, in, yeah. That's See, traditionally. I've, that's what, I've, what, Jay, what PJ Hogan did. I've never had any interest in the Peter Pan story at all. Mm. And I think maybe part of that has to do with, the, I mean, I never really had uh, the opportunity to be a kid when I was a kid, just because of all the stuff that I went through. And then I couldn't wait to grow the fuck up and get the hell out of my house. So, you know, adulthood was something that I always craved. I didn't, you know, crave staying as small as I was. Uh, So Peter Pan just never really was, uh, it it never uh, boated my float. So, uh, but it just seems like, you know, you could just tell that story in a straightforward fashion. Yeah. Instead of doing this thing where, oh, you know, you have to become Peter Pan to rescue your kids. And it's like, stop it. A big part of the marketing at the time was like, what, uh, something like, what happened if Peter Pan grew up? And I remember thinking like, who gives a shit? (laughs) But then he wouldn't be Peter Pan anymore. Next. He's just some guy. It's like, uh, okay, uh. Yeah, I guess Dustin Hoffman was having a lot of fun pretending to be Terry Thomas, but it's like, (laughs) but but also, okay, uh, why was Phil Collins in this movie? Why was David Crosby in this movie? Why? Well, okay, I I know why Jimmy Buffett was in this movie because he had the whole pirate persona. Okay, so he gets to cameo as a pirate. Why was Glenn Close dressed like a dude? I don't know, but that's it took me a long time. Even when people told me what scene she was in as a dude, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just a she was in full on Albert Knobs yeah, mode at the time. Preparing for her, <laughs> right? Eventual I guess role, uh, Albert Knobs a pirate, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, and then it's like, I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid. Much like Return of the Jedi, uh, I didn't. Re- 
I wouldn't have known who Phil Collins, David Crosby, or Jimmy Buffett were at the time. I had no, no. idea they were in this movie. I knew who Phil Collins they, they was. They all have my, cameo appearances. Yeah, because my parents were big into uh, uh, Phil Collins. And I remember being like, hey, that looks like Phil Collins. Yep. <laughs> what? It's him. But I mean, and, and uh, Robin Williams was, I mean, in a way, he, well, actually, he was ideally cast to play that part the way that part was written. The trouble is, he didn't play it right at first. There was still too much Robin Williams mm-hmm. when he was just, you know, the, the dad. The thing is, he, he hadn't learned by, at that point in his career how to really dial it down. Yeah. He had to be more serious. He had to be like one hour photo serious yeah. in that, the early sequences of the movie. And he was still just getting little wisecracks in here and there. And it did not serve the character. And it, yeah. it just made everything kind of wrong. Uh, and you could see also that there were vestiges of the, the musical version that Steve Spielberg initially wanted to do. And it's like, well, you know, pick one or the other, but just either have it all musical or just take no. away all the musical numbers and people marching around chanting shit. Uh, it, that doesn't help. <laughs> um, the, the music is, is okay. But like I said, it's just, there's not really much going on there that Williams has to work with. One thing that I found pretty clever though, is like, in the opening sequence where John Williams, where Robin Williams is uh, missing his son's ball game, you'll notice that the music in that, the opening of the film is a lot, is really contemporary. Yeah. There's no orchestral elements into it. It's really sort of like a, a, a light jazz kind of huh. music. It's not until they get to London and everything, you know, sort of proceeds from there that that's when John Williams break out, breaks out all the orchestral elements. I thought that was clever. Yeah. But. Even, you know, in spite of that, there's just, I didn't really feel that there was too much of anything going on in this movie that appealed to me on any level. That's, that's interesting. The, uh, and we can't delve too, uh, too far into this, but, uh, no one is asking, no one besides you, Tyler, is asking us to spend any more time on hook. I was just going to talk about <laughs> Peter Pan in general. Oh, okay. Um, that, uh, yeah, in, whether it be, uh, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland or this, I remember it just in general, just go ahead and you're, tr- you're if you're trading on our love of this thing, just do it. Just yeah. trade on it. You know, just tell us this, this straightforward version of the story. You don't need to add any other stuff for and who are you adding it for? Yeah, there's plenty of if you want to explore your father issues, which I know that Spielberg is a thing that he's interested in. But uh, there, there's plenty of there's plenty of stuff in the original uh, Peter Pan, and that's one well, of the things that I've always found Captain Hook to be interesting. I've always been interested in the character of Captain Hook because of all the things that he represents. And in the who directed it, PJ Hogan? Hogan. Yeah, let's use this opportunity to yeah. steer people toward the 2003 uh, right. PJ Hogan uh, one with Jason Isaac as, as Captain Hook and Jeremy Sumter. I think played yes. Peter Pan. Um, I don't remember who Wendy is. It's someone, uh, right? It's someone, I think. All right, think. you talk about it. It's a great movie. Have you seen it's that a, one, West? Yeah. It's real. It is, that movie is everything this one isn't, where, like, this one, Neverland seems kind of autumnal and boring, uh, whereas in in the 2003 Peter Pan, Neverland is everything that you think it should be and everything you think it could be, which is it's beautiful, it's bright, it's dazzling and all that. But Rachel uh, Hurd Wood. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. But Olivia Williams is Mrs. Darling. That's right. Yes, and I remember her being uh, very good and very sad. Um, but That's what uh, she but, does. Yeah, yeah. Very sorry, good and very she's sad. being Olivia Williams. Pardon me. Uh, but yeah, Jason Isaacs finds stuff in Captain Hook that I think the character definitely bears out, which is a, a, a really a deep sadness and a deep loneliness, and just a guy who uh, is the exact opposite of Peter Pan. Not merely in that he is an adult and Peter Pan is a kid. 
but that Peter Pan is life. He's in, he's, he's, uh, eternal youth and all that. And Captain Hook is just alone and has no love in his life. And it really comes through so that finally when Captain Hook, uh, dies, um, he's kind of okay with it. <laughs> he's not necessarily okay, but he's, he's resigned himself to it and sort of recognizes that I'm not losing much if I die. There's a, there's a, there's a lot going on. And it also incorporates a fair amount of, uh, sexuality into it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we should move on. It's very interesting because I've been keeping track and we have spent longer talking about hook than any other movie we talked about today. So let's move on to JFK and let's just speed past it.
You, you can't speed past it. That's, <laughs> that, that was the whole point of the motorcade. So let's slow down so we can take the shot. And no, um, yeah, this it, this is probably my my favorite Oliver Stone movie. Uh, closely followed by the the next Oliver Stone movie we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it's it's weird. It really is kind of a weird movie on on some levels. I mean, for starters, he was sort of getting into this sort of stacking editing kind of thing where yeah. there was this like, sort of like parallel things going on in, in, in the narrative between the, 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 the dialogue and the visuals. And it was something that he sort of ran riot with in The Doors, his previous film. And then he kind of dialed it back for this one, which worked out a lot better. Um, I, and I remember still all the, uh, the the controversy that you know was brewing up you know before the film was released, and everybody was just saying, "Oh, you, you shouldn't be doing this." And it's like, "Well, why? Why the hell shouldn't we be doing this?" But but in the end, you know, it it worked out. Everybody got what they wanted. But uh, it's just <laughs> what, an odd, what an odd way of saying that. We <laughs> all still, everyone's happy. It's 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 still a great movie, and and the score is once again it's like it's an elegy for something that was lost. And I I really feel that. Uh, Oliver Stone feels like this was the moment where the entire nation lost its innocence because the Civil War didn't happen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I think the the score really reflects this. And it also reflects this sort of vestigial idealism that sort of hopefully, uh, at least in in the director's eyes, that, you know, was sort of left behind by John F. Kennedy. Then people are, you know, picking that up and, and running with that and, you know, so hopefully there will be some some idealists out there who will carry on Kennedy's uh, uh, you know torch for truth, justice in the American way, and sleeping with Marilyn Monroe. Um, uh, at this point, I want that order. <laughs> <laughs> at this point, I want to add that uh, all three of these scores that Williams wrote for Oliver Stone they all very prominently feature the trumpet, and the trumpet is performed by a gentleman named Tim Morrison, who is a trumpet player for the Boston Pops, which is a very popular. I don't know if they're still popular. They were a very popular orchestra at one time. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, they were on PBS like every week during the summer. And they were conducted by a a gray-haired elderly gentleman named Arthur Fiedler. who was a beloved uh, uh, conductor. And in 1980, he gave up that spot. I don't know if he retired or if they pushed him out, but he was replaced by John Williams. John Williams became the principal conductor of the Boston Pops in 1980. And... um, because so, he didn't have anything else going on. Yeah, really. <laughs> so, so that's where that relationship was forged. Because, like I said, Tim Morrison was, uh, you know, he played trumpet for for the Boston Pops. So, I, I have to assume that that's where they met. And um, I, I, they, he was conducting for them for like, at least a, a dozen years or so. And he actually he quit at one point because uh, the orchestra dissed him. Well, actually, to be uh, perfectly precise, they they hissed him. This is a real. This is the thing that I didn't know. This, this was, was a, Captain Hook. This was a thing that I didn't know orchestras did. I read about this at least in terms of this story, and they said, "Oh, this is the thing that happens." But I don't know anybody who knows more about orchestras. Get back to me and let me know if this is the thing. But apparently, they're they're, they're rehearsing a piece that Williams wrote, and I guess if uh, you know when they're sight reading a piece initially, if uh, members of the orchestra don't like it, they hiss. And they hissed at something that Williams wrote during a sight reading in a rehearsal. And he just said, well, fuck you guys and walked out. But they, they convinced him to stay. I'm assuming Tim Morrison was not one of the people that hissed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone on to work with Williams on those three scores. But Kate Kulzik, please let us know if this is a thing that happens. Yeah, I, I want to know. Because I've only ever heard of this happening with the, the, the John Williams uh, Boston Pop story. I, I don't know if this happens all the time. Um, 
but it happened to him. And yeah, so he he threw down his uh, baton and and then took off. But they convinced him to come back, and he kept going through like the early 1990s he was conducting for them and so you could see him uh week in and week out on summers uh, during, uh, on pbs uh, conducting the boston pops that was kind of a a fun thing so but yeah this so that's why all three of these scores have the trumpet played by by tim morrison uh probably the most effective performance was in the earlier movie and born on the fourth of july uh there was more for him to do there i think but in this score yeah again uh very mournful, not necessarily so melancholy. There's sort of like, uh, I was going to say, it sounds when the trumpet plays often like by itself, it kind of sounds like taps. Yeah, sort of. Well, which is kind of fitting when you consider that, you know, yeah, it's for a president who died. Yeah. Uh, But also then again, though, there is this sort of hopeful, positive quality to the music because as I said, I think Oliver Stone, you know, wants people to sort of carry forward those ideals that, you know, John Kennedy uh, presumably left behind. So that's, that's what's going on there. I like that uh, score very much. I love the movie. All right, let's move on. Okay. Uh, What? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) There There are so much left. There are three of us and two of us are talking, David, and we've got things we both have things to say. (laughs) All right. The third says, shut up, we need to move on. Yeah, that's my job. That's fine, except what I was going to say and uh, is that um, I do love all of John Williams' work with Oliver Stone because like, the bit of music that you picked for JFK, it does, it, I, I hear it and I, and I believe it's, it's John Williams. Like it's, it is, so it's not that hard to believe. But you know, once the conspiracy stuff really starts kicking in and... It's, you know, it's moving forward and it sounds like a thriller. Yeah. It does not sound like the John Williams that I'm familiar with. It sounds, uh, I don't know, it's, we keep, I, I keep going back to the word propulsive. Like, it sounds very propulsive and very paranoid. I don't know, it just, I, and I think it's great. And it just feels like Oliver Stone and the movies that he makes uh, just drew something out of John Williams that, that I think Spielberg and uh, George Lucas and other filmmakers just didn't seem to bring out of him well, or they didn't, don't, didn't need to. They don't have that kind of sensibility that Oliver yeah. Stone has. Yeah. And also they, he doesn't really work with that kind of material that Oliver Stone was putting out because that's the thing. Yeah. That music for those sequences is very reminiscent of like those seventies conspiracy thrillers. Uh, yeah. Which I'm sure is exactly the kind of vibe that Stone was going for. Yeah. Cause obviously he sees the whole thing as a massive conspiracy and to, and to contrast like the, the optimism of the, of the piece that you picked with the to go from that into oh hey th- bad things are happening here it's so jarring that uh you know but that's the thing is when you look if if we're thinking about like you know the death of uh of american innocence it didn't fade out like it was killed very quickly and very abruptly on november 26 1920 uh, 1963 22nd 22nd pardon me pardon me i just saw the uh I should have said eleven twenty two sixty three because that's what I've been thinking in terms of uh, that Hulu show, um, which is actually quite good. But um, yeah, it's did John Williams do the music for that? I wish <laughs> the music the, the music is oddly playful in that. I don't know. I don't care for it. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I feel like it's always exciting for me when John Williams surprises us because i think a lot of people when they say uh just usual john williams thing now we all know what people mean when they say that but if you show them 
JFK or, you know, catch me if you can, or, or even the, some of the early stuff that we played last time, he's capable of a lot of different things. And even within the stuff that we know him for, he can still throw us a curveball. And he's, uh, hmm, hang on. Would you say he's the greatest uh, film composer of all time? Why don't we save that for the end of part three? Oh, good point. Good point. Um, Gosh, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> even when, um, even when he is doing the usual John Williams thing, the usual John Williams thing is still pretty great. <laughs> oh yeah. Case in point, Jurassic Park.
Yeah, well, I don't know. There's not a whole lot to say about this because I mean, everybody's seen Jurassic Park. Everybody knows how great it is, uh, and the music is uh, fantastic. We chose the I chose this, this theme for the end, which because this is really the 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 only small enough piece of music that contains both of the main themes that you hear in the film, um, because they're they're both appropriately uh, magisterial and soaring and suffused with awe and adventure, which is, you know, what you should have when, uh, you know, until the part where you're being torn apart by bloody great dinosaurs. <laughs> and the, the, like Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, <clears throat> and we talked about recency bias earlier in the show, but I think we've gotten to the point where, no, it's not recency bias. Like, the theme, the main theme for Jurassic Park has become a part of the cultural lexicon. Like, people just know it and recognize it. It's in Swiss Army Man, used very uh, uh, hilariously and movingly (laughs) at the same time. Um, And you see it sort of pop up in in different places. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Oh, you guys should see Swiss Army Man. It is an odd, it is an interesting choice that the film has two themes and neither of them are horror based or thriller based. They are there. It's the honestly like it's the music that John Hammond hears in his head. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. just like so excited that this is happening and understandably so. Yeah, and to a degree also, you know, it reflects that the feelings of the scientists who are you know confronted for the first time in their life with real live actual dinosaurs what but what in a way you know any scientist who's studying fossils and all ancient dinosaur stuff would like to be able to experience uh maybe from a safe distance but (laughs) but yeah that's so that's those are the things that williams keys into and and captures very well but then of course yeah when you get to the part where terrible things are happening he's able to do that very well yeah also but i think what was really interesting in the movie is the part where he doesn't do any music, which mm-hmm. is in the initial T-Rex attack. Yeah. There's no music in that scene. You know, it's just the pure unvarnished terror of the situation, which is absolutely, I think, the right choice. Yeah. I really can't think of anything that Williams could have had. Well, I mean, maybe he could have. You never know. But right there, that's just Steven Spielberg just at the height of his powers, just just twiddling the knobs and fiddling with, uh, with everybody's emotions and just putting you through the ringer masterfully. And you don't necessarily need anything on top of that. And now that I think about it, so I don't believe there's any music in the Nedry death scene. There is for Muldoon. Right. Because I think we're seeing the we're seeing the raptors like in in action and the raptors are very not to imply that t-rex is not cinematic but like the raptors are like villains they're like actual villains you know um and it's worth noting that like when quint dies in jaws there's no music there like i don't know it's i feel like the and i'm sure this is a a function of spielberg as well but just the the choice to not underscore certain things because not merely because like, ah, we don't need it, but also just like, ah, maybe it's a little crass to put music with like the death, you know, the attack of the, uh, on these poor children, uh, and, uh, and the, the death of this man. I don't know. No, I think it just feels more raw terror that way yeah. without the music. You know, it's just, you're, you you add music into that and you're kind of gilding the lily. Yeah. So without the music, it just feels more powerful and more in the moment and more, more real. Because, you know, look, generally speaking, when you're going through something bad in real life, I mean, unless somebody's playing a radio or something, there's right. not going to be any musical yeah. accompaniment. And even then, the, what they're playing is probably not going to fit what you're thinking. Yeah, it'll be like Fleetwood Mac or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm being attacked by bears, and it's Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> 
It's like, oh, this bear's going its own way. <laughs> uh, good one. Thank oh, man. You. Wouldn't that be all? Maybe that's that's why Werner Herzog wanted that tape buried in, in, in Grizzly Man, because he's listening to it. And really, they're just they're just it's it's a bear attacking that guy while, you know, and meanwhile, the thing is, he had like like the rumors album playing on a boombox next to the next to the tent. That's what that's what Werner Herzog is reacting to so violently. Oh, and he's, he's like, I don't want to ruin this album for myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You okay. Speaking of awkward transitions. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> now we have to go from that to Schindler's list.
now. <laughs> See, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we're still laughing from the other thing. Yeah. I can't help it. <laughs> and the fact that we're talking about something as serious as this, I, I'll tell you what. Look, I'll I'll tell you a story that will uh, that will suitably bring everybody down. Oh, good. Because well, look, you know, uh, Schindler's List is a it's a beautiful film. This is the first film. No, no, actually, I'm sorry. Uh, no, it is. It is the first film he collaborated on with, with Janice Kaminsky. At first I thought, no, he did uh, Jurassic Park. But no, that was Dean Blabbermouth Cundy. Dean, Dean Cundy did that one. And Hook. So, good for him. Yeah, Janice Kaminsky was busy shooting Cool as Ice, the vanilla ice uh, vehicle. Oh, good for him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the thing is, is uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an exquisite film. It's incredibly heartbreaking and sad. But it also is uh, beautiful in terms of the black and white cinematography is <laughs> incredible. All kinds of fant- fantastic performances. Ben Kingsley is, is marvelous in a role where you know, he has to bring a great deal of gravitas. But then there are also just throughout the movie, not just for him, but for the other characters. There are all these little moments of just like you're really sort of sly or gallows humor that really uh, just adds yet another level to the tragedy is that these people are in the worst possible situation and yet they're still able to just, you know, crack wise, which, you know, you kind of, you have to do in the worst of times. You got to find some way to, to get through what is arguably just like the worst thing anybody could go through. But, um, I'll tell you about my sister. Uh, I was reading someone (laughs) real quick. I was reading someone, I can't remember who this was, but basically made the case that, Steven Spielberg is great at comedy unless he's making a comedy. <laughs> like, like, there's always a lot of funny stuff in his movies, except yeah. for when he's trying to make a movie funny. I'll give him that. <laughs> that 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 sounds about right. No, but you know, so I saw this movie when it came out, and it's like it's a packed house, and I'm there with my sister, uh, who's just a horrible person. Um, just, oh my. She's she is for among other just terrible qualities. She is allergic to any kind of uh, of sentimentality. And so mm-hmm. we get to the climactic sequence where, you know, Liam Neeson is, is you know, has to, you know, am scray and he's in tears and surrounded by all the, the, the people that he, he helped, whose lives he helped save. And he's, he's just crying. He's like, I could have done more. I could have done more. And everybody in the audience, including myself, is in tears, except for my sister, who just <laughs> leans over and whispers in my ear, he's laying it on a bit thick, isn't he? <laughs> and I'm like... Great screaming Jesus in a gas fire. What the <laughs> hell is wrong with you, woman? It just, but that's that's just her. I mean, this is the same woman who, like, some uh, sometime later, because it was, you know, it was around the same time, uh, she calls me up at work, calls me up at work to complain about the climactic scene in Philadelphia. <laughs> Where Tom, uh, Tom Hanks is listening to the opera and it's a heartbreaking scene, which I hadn't seen at that time. I seen it later and I found it profoundly moving, but she could not stand it. Is it's your like, sister Larry David? <laughs> no, because he's funny. Oh, okay. So she's just unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh my God. It's just <laughs> so awful. I, it's, you know, unbelievable. I don't, I don't know where that comes from, but it's just like, Jesus. So... The music, of course, which is why we're here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is uh, it, there again, mournful, melancholy, tragic, uh, uh, an incredible uh, opportunity for a solo violin played by the, the great Itchak Perlman. Uh, just amazing stuff. Uh, understandably, you won an Academy Award for it. Why? You know, just everybody else should have just stayed home. Uh, it's it. it it's an incredible score. It's incredibly memorable. It's got a beautiful haunting melody. Um, the only thing that I, that the question that I find myself asking now and then is like, you know, cause early around this same period in 1985, uh, Steven Spielberg did, uh, the color purple. 
which is like one of the, the only movies that he ever did that was not scored by John Williams. He brought in Quincy Jones. And I'm pretty sure John Williams is not Jewish. And so, it, it, I do wonder occasionally, you know, like, well, well, would Spielberg have had any, given any thought to hiring a Jewish composer? Mm. Do, mm. Might that have added something even more to the score for this movie? I don't know. I love the score that we have. Yeah. But it's like, you know, clearly he, he felt that, that John Williams might not be appropriate for this, for, for the color purple. Or I could be wrong about that. Maybe Steven Spielberg only got the rights to the property on, on condition that he he brought in as many uh, black craftsmen behind the scenes as he could. I don't know. I really don't know uh, too much about, you know, what was going on with that. The difference is that Steven Spielberg is not black. That's true too. <laughs> yeah, and there was a whole thing about that, to, a whole to do. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Spike Lee is still fuming about it. Hmm. But uh, but as far as Schindler's List itself goes, um, it is a masterpiece. The fact that he was wrapping up Jurassic Park while he was working on Schindler's List. In fact, to go back just a little bit, Jurassic Park, the, the, the scoring sessions for that movie were the only ones that John Williams scored for a Steven Spielberg film that Spielberg himself did not attend personally because he was over in Europe working on Schindler's List. You know, one thing that I find interesting about the score to Schindler's List is that, you know, the music does... This is gonna. I feel like I can't find a way, good way to say this. The music does sound Jewish. Yeah, but it's, and I feel like once again, like the the way you were talking about uh, the music revealing Han Solo. This is called Schindler's List. Right. The lead is Oscar Schindler. The music says this is not his story. Hmm. That's interesting. Good, you know, yeah, that's a fascinating point. Yeah, I had not considered it that way. Okay. I just thought of it a moment ago. Oh, so. That's well, this, is, this is not a. This is not a. Well, then a it's thesis. no good. This is not you a. You haven't thought of it for I at least three up. days. Screw you. <laughs> I'll give. I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's a great place to move on to our final selection and um, the final uh, John Williams Oliver Stone collaboration. Right. Yes. Nixon.
here again, uh, it has this, this particular piece has this mournful melancholy uh, feel because it's a flashback to uh, Richard and Pat Nixon's youth where he was just like the most pathetic loser imaginable. I mean, he's driving Pat around on her dates with other guys. Wow. Um, but, but it speaks to Nixon's character and that's why Stone put it in the movie. And the score for this movie is, it really is fascinating. The, the, a lot of the music that I, that we didn't play, you need to, you just need to see the movie in particular, the way the film opens is with this really, well, it was what I call an anti fanfare because it's not because what how it's just is this one very sort of simple phrase dun 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 and then it stops right and then he repeats it but that's it and it's like it's not a fanfare that says a great man approacheth it's a fanfare that says take the kids inside Ethel I don't like the look of this guy <laughs> it's in that it's it's diabolically clever because in that one phrase John Williams effectively sums up Richard Milhouse Nixon that's the guy because it's it doesn't have a heroic quality to it, and also because it has this sort of this upward path, upward trajectory, and then it comes to a dead stop. That's the guy because it's a guy. He that's what the whole movie is about. Is that it was a guy. He had potential. He had greatness within him, and it was within his grasp. It cannot be denied. Yes, he did open China which was a big, big deal. Nobody else did that. Yes, the Environmental Protection Agency was started on in his administration. Mm-hmm. He is very likely the last Republican president to ever acknowledge that, yeah, the environment may be something we might want to take care of, goddammit. But so these, those big, big things, on the other hand, there's everything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Richard Nixon, I believe, did more in my lifetime, in my lifetime, to undermine the American people's confidence in their political leaders and institutions, you know, mm-hmm. and that, it, that, that cannot be understated. So, um, that's the thing that I found really amazing about that one, just that one phrase of the music that it captures the man's character so much that there was, there was something about him that he could have been great, but his own weaknesses and insecurities got in the way and they pulled him down. And they just, they not only ruined his career, they not only ruined his presidency, but they, they ruined something in a lot of the American people. And again, that's one of the things that I think Oliver Stone is trying to get at with this movie. He has a sympathy, a certain degree of sympathy for this character, which is a lot more than plenty of other people. I remember very vividly after he died, you know, then there were, yes, at his funeral and then on news commentaries, people were saying, oh, well, you know, he did do some great things. Like I said, there were a couple of great things, but then like the, the issue of Rolling Stone magazine came out immediately after his death. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was in no forgiving mood. I just, he, among other things, he said, the man was so crooked, he had to screw his pants on every morning. (laughs) And it's like, wow. But you know, I, I, I can't let him off the hook either. You know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go as far as Thompson did, but uh, yeah, like I said, it's just what he did. It was just, it was so inexcusable and it just sent the country down this, this dark spiral. And you know, it sent us in a direction that we, we never should have gone. So a lot of the music captures that whole sort of uh, dark, crumbling kingdom coming to an end feel that Stone was going for. 
but then in the middle of it, there's this, 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 particularly the flashbacks to Nixon's youth, which is where this particular piece of music comes from, is one of those, that really show a lot more about the character of the man than I think maybe a lot of people were willing to reckon with. Mm. You know? And that's one of the things that I give Oliver Stone a lot of credit for. So that's one of the reasons that this is my second favorite uh, Oliver Stone film. I, I absolutely love this movie. And, you know, you would guess, one would guess that, hey, uh, Oliver Stone's making a movie about Nixon. It's like, oh, okay, that's going to be... This is going to hurt. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> but not unlike W., I feel like he, I think he's an artist first, and I think he wants to try to get to what makes this person tick. And with Nixon, I think there's a surprising amount of sympathy. Um, and I think it's reflected in the music. Like, let's compare this to the, the bit of music that we played from JFK. The optimism of the music from JFK, mm-hmm. you know, obviously before it moves into the conspiracy, like, it's, it's pure optimism. Right. This... And it's because JFK himself was, uh, you know, we all think of him as like this great and noble man. Nixon, we all knew what what would become of him. And we also knew what he was like, you know, during the, the, the 50s and that kind of thing. But uh, the idea of, yes, there was greatness in him. And yes, he was, you know, he was reelected by a crazy margin. Like he was, a, he was not necessarily loved, but he was, uh, people had faith in him to a point. Uh and that he, there was greatness within him, but also within him. It's not an external thing. Within him, there were the, the seeds of, of his own destruction and destruction of much more. And so even when it's going back to his childhood, mm-hmm. and, you know, a time when if ever you could just have pure nostalgic music, this would be it. But no, it's saying that like, yes, this is the childhood that made Richard Nixon who he is. Mm-hmm. And... And one thing that I've always found uh, fascinating about uh, Nixon, um, you know, I've said this on the podcast before that uh, uh, when I was talking politics with some friends, they said, hey, you should go into someone said you should go into politics. You can because we were talking about how nobody (laughs) how no politicians can uh, very few politicians can actually like string words together publicly. They're like, hey, you like politics and you you give speeches. You should you should do it. I was like, I would be Nixon. I was like. He is a guy who was brought down not purely not by like corruption or looking to get financial gain. He was brought down by his own crippling insecurities. And it's like, that's me completely. I can barely stand to make it through this podcast. Um, <laughs> and so he's he's somebody that I that I feel a certain degree of kinship with, at least in as portrayed in film. And the idea that this was a guy who he wasn't like it, he wasn't led by his ideology. He wasn't led by like a desire to get rich. He wasn't led by any of these things. You know, that was part of who he was, but the thing that led him more than anything was what he, what he lacked either literally or what he thought he lacked. Right. And this movie is all about that. And I will say one, one thing, um, when we, uh, when you sent us the list of the, of the, the music we were going to listen to, I, you were apoplectic that there was no hook. Yeah. I was like, what the, uh, so, um, but I was interested to see what track you picked from Nick's. And I think this is a very good one. Uh, I was tempted to say, can we play a second track from Nixon, which is the music that plays during his 1968 Republican convention speech, which I was, uh, listening to the other day 
and Jen happened to uh, be in the other room, and, and so she heard it. And that music, which is, you know, Nixon at the height of his power, like yeah. he is, he's got the Republican nomination, he is going to win, and everyone pretty much knows it. And so the music is triumphant. Right. Jen heard it, and she said, is that the, she didn't say, is that the Imperial March? She said, is that the, the Darth Vader music from star Wars? <laughs> and it, and I said, no, it's from, I said, no, it's from Nixon. And then I started thinking, I thought this sounds a lot like the Imperial March. And I'm sure that's, <laughs> I can see that not being a mistake. Huh. Like, I think he's drawing on a lot of stuff in that moment, which is definitely a very, it looks very fascistic. Yeah. Uh, and the music that plays is like this is Nixon's version of triumph. Yeah, <laughs> is that it's, it's dark and it's and it sounds like the Imperial March. Yeah, because I mean, look, we all know what's coming yeah. <laughs> from his presidency. Yeah, so it's not something that you know you can't you couldn't look at it as an unvarnished triumph. Yeah, there's varnish all over it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been great, uh, and I very much look forward to. Um, rounding off this trilogy in another yeah. in another 20 weeks. Now, there'll be four more parts. <laughs> we're going to go like that Orson Welles biography. We're just going to we're just going to keep on adding into it and adding to it and it's never going to stop. That's right. Part 3 just came out, didn't it? I'm reading it now. Okay. Simon uh, Simon Callow? Yeah. I read parts 1 and 2. I think it's great. I think he's a great it writer. It is great, but when is he going to get to the end? Yeah. It was going to be three parts and then when you realize part well, no, 2 covers like six It was going to be two parts. Oh right. And then part 2 is like 6 months. Yeah, it covers like 6 years yeah. and it was like like, oh, sorry, this isn't the intro. Sorry. It's like, but don't, but don't worry. Now it'll be three parts and we'll get to the third part right away. Another 10 years later, yeah. part three comes out. Uh, sorry, it only goes through 1965. I was, I was just thinking that, yeah. All right. Um, so thank you uh, very much for listening to this. It was, it was fun. I hope you had fun uh, rocking out to all these sick uh, <laughs> Jay Willie tunes. Um, oh. You can find us at BattleshipPretension.com. That's where you can find part one if you missed it. Um, and you can find all of our movie reviews and other podcasts and all sorts of great, great stuff uh, from Movie Geeks at BattleshipPretension.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipPretension.com or at Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com, which is where you should send your uh, lists of the top five actresses and top five actresses of all time. Um, and you can follow, let's see, you can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. What's going on over there this week? Uh, let's see. And more uh, than one lesson uh, is what I should say. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, right now, uh, so Variety uh, put on this event. They've done it the last, the last few years. It's called Purpose, the Family and Faith-Based Summit. Uh, and they just bring in a lot of uh, faith-based filmmakers, and that, that they cast a pretty wide net for that label. Um, but they uh, and they just had a, a day of panels and stuff like that. I was unable to go because I was uh, doing uh, school at the time. Sure. Uh, and but our but Josh went, and uh, so the most recent episode is him reporting back about that. And then this coming week, um, there will be an episode about the film Prisoners. Okay. Uh, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. Uh, this week, we are talking about two shows that could not be more different. We're, we're, we're almost like that uh, podcast double feature. Yes. Uh, picking things that could not be more different. Uh, we're watching the uh, Food Network star okay. and Mr. Robot. <laughs> so uh, that'll be fun to hear us talk about those. West, where uh, can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, you can listen to my podcast, A Musical Notation, which can be found as part of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. So you can go to BattleshipPretension.com and find episodes of it there. It's also on iTunes and on Stitcher and on Google Play. Uh, 
You can follow uh, the podcast's Twitter at NotationPod, and you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony. And um, yeah, I just as I said earlier, we did a, an episode just on the uh, the soundtrack for the uh, the Summer Olympics from Los Angeles in 1984, and I just posted a bonus episode for the uh, 50th anniversary of the release of the classic Beatles album Revolver. I'm going to try and do more bonus episodes uh, in the future. It's a fantastic podcast. It really is. Everyone should listen to it. And I've said this, I think I said this to you individually, Wes, but I'll throw it out to the listeners. If any of you works for a radio station, here's what you need to do. You need to listen to Musical Notation and marvel at uh, DJ West Anthony uh, (laughs) and uh, then give him a job as a DJ because he's great. This this might not help those people, but uh, I got... My, so one of my favorite uh, compliment on Facebook, somebody described the show as like Dr. Demento, but with film music. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nobody thinks that I'm, I'm serious when I say this, but Dr. Demento was a profoundly important musical influence on me. Because the thing is, I don't know if you ever listened to his show. The thing is, yes, uh, the music was funny, but the thing is, he would play anything, regardless uh-huh. of genre. It didn't matter what kind of music it was. It just had to be funny or weird. And so I, I was introduced to all different kinds of music just by listening to him. It was, it was, a, it was a big thing for me. Yeah, you don't, a lot you of don't have to sell me. I'm a big uh, Dr. Demento fan myself. Musical right. notation. It's great. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 